Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hi, and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast. Sometimes we got to get back to basics because the basics may not be as basic as we thought, basically. The October 2022 issue of the Texas Bar Journal features an op-ed titled Fully Acknowledging Human Damages. It is what's below the surface that matters. The author, Randy Sorrells, is a past president of the State Bar of Texas, a specialist in personal injury law, and the 2022 Tex Aboda Trial Lawyer of the Year. In case you're wondering, Tex Aboda is the Texas wing of the American Board of Trial Advocates. We should listen then when Randy reminds us about the full extent of tort damages and how we as lawyers can appreciate, acknowledge, and adjudicate damages. But with all due respect to Randy, don't we already address damages in tort litigation? How is this article presenting us with anything new? Well, let's ask Randy and find out. Randy Sorrells, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you've you've got a lot of got a lot of litigation. You're keeping yourself busy, but let's just cut to the chase. Like, why are we talking about damages after all this time? That seems like something we all learned in law school. So, walk us through that, if you would. Well, I think non-economic damages is kind of the focus of this article because it appears during COVID that jurors are understanding better what non-economic damages mean. They have been isolated. Uh, they have had uh, their issues, uh, physical and emotional uh, issues. And frankly, I think jurors are starting to truly render verdicts consistent with what the injured victim has experienced. Well, it's it's interesting, too, because you mentioned COVID in the article, which I thought was fascinating. I, I never personally and look, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, but I had not made the connection between COVID and you know non-economic damages. Is there some kind of hard data to back that up? I mean, are they are there surveys or something else that kind of gives us an insight into that link? I'm not aware of any hard data, but there's a lot of talk at the courthouses across Texas that jurors are are who used to be hesitant to give damages for physical pain and mental anguish are more ready to understand those injuries suffered by the plaintiffs and then award more uh, commensurate damages. So let's maybe start from the basics. What prompted you to write this particular article? There's a lot of things you could have write, written about, but you chose non-economic damages. What was going through your head when you decided this was this was the article you were going to submit? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, the the non-economic damage award damages awards we've seen over the last couple of years have in fact increased for decades. Uh, jurors would uh, consistently just ignore the people's complaints on on physical pain, mental anguish, impairment, disfigurement. Uh, and, and now we're seeing a uh, real realization that jurors can understand this. Importantly, the Texas Supreme Court may be looking at these issues because of as uh, awards have gotten bigger, defense lawyers are now asking for the court to legislate from the bench, in my opinion, uh, and lower those amounts. And so my uh, fairness argument is, is for decades, we, the plaintiff's bar, did not go to the court and say, you need to order damages to be larger when we all know suffering occurred. And 
now when we get to the arguments made by the defense teams, uh, you know what's good for the goose was good for the gander also. Let the jury system, uh, and in my case, I, you know, I had three substantial verdicts here in the last year and a half. We opened a new firm, and uh, people are asking me, you know, what do you think the court's going to do? And that's a, that's a really big question. Okay, well, that's a very interesting point to talk on because, Randy, I think you just threw down the gauntlet when it comes to plaintiff's lawyers and defense lawyers. So let's take this opportunity to hear a quick word from our sponsor, and then we're going to be back with Randy Sorrells in just a moment. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at one 800 343-8527. And we're back. We're back with Randy Sorrells talking about non-economic damages. And Randy, before the ad break, you had you had mentioned this, this dichotomy between the way defense lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers are approaching this. And if I'm summarizing it correctly, it's effectively that sometimes defense lawyers are asking judges to, as you put it, legislate from the bench and reduce non-economic damages. And that plaintiff's lawyers are not doing that when the shoe is on the other foot. Do you think there's, if, if, if the damages are going up over time, the non-economic damages awards, do you see us maybe going through another round of legislative tort reform? Is that what's around the corner? There's discussion that there will be uh, defense-oriented groups that introduce legislation to put a cap on non-economic damages. There is a cap on non-economic damages in medical malpractice cases. So certainly the legislature knows how to do that, but they passed that cap through, uh, in my opinion, a, they generated a crisis that doctors were gonna leave Texas if we didn't have a cap on non-economic damages. That was in 2003. I remember. Yeah, and, and I don't think they can generate a crisis for businesses leaving Texas because of our non-economic damages awards. Texas is a you know, booming state, and I think they're going to have a more difficult time generating a crisis. So we'll see what happens in this next legislative session. The more concerning thing is, is the defense attack on non-economic damages through the court system. Uh, I'll give you the example that we think the court system works. Uh, my wife and I, Alex uh, uh, Furious Sorrells and I, secured a $352.7 million jury verdict for an injured worker in October of 2021. The trial judge who sat through all the testimony um, was asked to remit by the defense team uh, money, and he did. He, he remitted $117 million. That's how mm. the system is designed to work. It's a trial judge who hears the witnesses, sees the credibility, uh, reviews the documents, if the jury, if he feels or she feels is too high, then they can go through a remittiture process. I think what the defense bar is now doing is saying, well, if the trial judge doesn't go far enough, then let's give the Court of Appeals justices or the Supreme Court judge justices um, a new standard to lower them even more. Okay, so let's maybe step back for a second, because there's there's a lot to unpack with this. This is Honestly, when when I first saw that we we're going to be talking about damages, I thought, "What's there to talk about?" And honestly, Randy, you've you've <laughs> you've opened it up. There's there's a lot here that we need to unpack. What are you hoping to accomplish 
with an article like this? You know, is there is, is there a message for for plaintiffs' lawyers, defense lawyers, non lawyers? I mean, kind of walk us through what you want people to walk away with. Well, the article itself is really written to lawyers who seek to persuade juries by using um, some time tested persuasive uh, methods and some newer methods to allow jurors to open up their minds with a better perspective on what plaintiffs, injured plaintiffs in particular, go through. The defense lawyer certainly can look at the article and and may try to create some counter arguments, or they may use it to go to their clients and say, uh, the reality is, is that jurors do believe um, now that that uh, mental anguish damages, physical pain damages are real, and they may award a just and righteous amount. Well, here's here's something that I found kind of interesting. So in the article, you walk through the different stages of litigation and you make some very interesting points and we'll talk about those, you know, sort of step by step, you know, talking to your clients, how you counsel the clients and then, you know, the role of the lawyers, the closing arguments, you, you walk through the different stages of litigation. One thing we, one thing that the article doesn't really talk about, and maybe we can talk about it here is the settlement process. You know, so what happens when you're, so in it, you talk about starting with the client, really going through what it's like to live day to day with an injury, even if the injuries are not apparent, which I think is an excellent point, right? I mean, there's the person looks fine when you at first glance, but you don't understand what they're living with. But then when your counsel, when that client kind of gives you the, the trial lawyer, the litany of their damages and says, here's what I'm living with day to day. And here's what I need to compensate me. Then when you go to settlement, and you're trying to counsel that client to maybe settle for a lesser amount, how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile the recognition of damages with this idea that it may be advantageous to settle those claims for an amount that is less than the full amount of those damages? Well, the biggest ad advantage to settlement for both sides is certainty uh, sure. and finality. And, you know, on these uh, cases that Alex and I have tried over the last year and a half, uh, we have appeals and we have post-judgment briefing and, and uh, you know, that does not bring finality. That does not bring closure. That does, certainly does not help pay medical bills that our clients need to be paid. So sure. settlement is important, but the settlement numbers are affected by jury verdicts and getting jury verdicts uh, over the last couple of years by all the, the plaintiffs bar with higher numbers on non-economic damages allows insurance companies and those in the decision-making um, positions to better evaluate what a jury may do going forward. And those numbers, I believe, are, are going to be higher. I guess, effectively, then, the question is certainty versus full compensation. Is that a fair reduction of the essential question? Very fair. I think when both sides are equally unhappy, that's probably a good settlement. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we've heard that. I guess... So as plaintiff's lawyers, what would you what would you tell your fellow plaintiff's lawyers when it comes to balancing that, balancing the the need for certainty with this desire to get full compensation for what the client and you as a lawyer feel are are just non-economic damages? Well, I think from plaintiff's lawyer's standpoint, and we do this in our office all the time, and, and we have uh, some young lawyers and more experienced lawyers here. One of the things that people fall back on or, hey, what are the medical bills? How much in lost wages are there? And that's not our a paradigm anymore. It's what are the injuries and how do those injuries affect someone's lives, uh, someone's life? Because 
for our clients, um, the medical bills are just a drop in the bucket. And that's what the point of the article is. The iceberg, uh, which is the mm-hmm. in the article itself in the bar journal, upcoming bar journal, it itself shows 10% of the iceberg is above the water, but 90% of the iceberg is below the water. And we as plaintiff's lawyers need to empathize and emphasize uh, what those below the water damages are to insurance companies to the defense team and ultimately to the jury if that's the case if insurance companies want to stay in the old age of we're just going to look at the medical bills i think they're going to be wrong more times than they're right you just said something fairly interesting that i i don't know that i i got that out of the article so i'm glad we're talking about this which is which is effectively that medical bills may be an antiquated way of arriving at a fair damages number you're not looking at the medical bills themselves you're looking effectively at pain and suffering is that is that a fair, a fair pithy way of, of stating the actual non-economic damage? It's what it's what is it like to live with this injury aside from what you're paying to doctors and hospitals? Is that fair? No, that's very fair. I mean, if the juries award economic damages, that goes to pay medical doctors back. That goes sure. to pay hospitals back. But it doesn't do anything for the person who's having to suffer through the injuries that that were uh, thrust upon them, typically in a natural way through no mm-hmm. fault of their own, and they're going to be doing, living with this the rest of their life, or at least, at least for an extended period of time. So is, is this paradigm, this idea of going with going from medical bills purely to looking more at living with the injury, is that something that, that you feel plaintiff's lawyers maybe need to pay more attention to? Well, not only they may need to pay more attention to, but we are paying more attention to it. There's constant discussion okay. on our listservs whether or not we should submit medical bills or not. And in the in the case we tried, so my wife and I started a firm in in January of 21, 2021. Mm-hmm. We tried a case with involving Roger Clements, the baseball player's son and godson, and mm-hmm. uh, we had medical bills. Certainly, was because they were they were both injured, but we chose not to submit those to the jury. So it was a pure non-economic damages claim, and for the two of them, the jury awarded three point two four million dollars, recognizing the severity of the injuries on their physical body and what's going on between their ears for those uh, two, two also uh, professional baseball players. And we're seeing more and more of, of plaintiff's lawyers not submitting the, the medical bills because they're really minor compared to what the loss is to the plaintiff. That is kind of, I guess, pardon the expression, it's kind of a gutsy way of approaching damages because you know i think as lawyers we tend to think you got to put everything in front of the jury including the medical bills and including the non-economics so it sounds like you're saying that as almost as a trial strategy or as a tactic you don't put the medical bills up you focus more on on the pain and suffering the non-economic side of it that's a very fair uh analogy this the this last april I was honored to represent two lawyers who were one of whom was hit in an auto pedestrian case. She was the pedestrian. She was walking to the courthouse and her medical bills in the past were one hundred thousand dollars, which are significant. But Mm -hmm. I I emphasized to both she and her husband uh, lawyers, I don't think we should submit the past medical bills because they're not representative of her very significant injury. Um, There she had future medical bills, which we did submit. And the jury awarded those of two hundred thousand dollars. But they also awarded $9.1 million in non-economic damages. Again, another example of things that have been taught to me by others of let's focus on the injuries to the plaintiff, the real injuries, the human losses to the plaintiff, not on what's going to be paid back to the doctors. 
So let's, I guess, let's, let's go to the issue of metrics. How do you measure the pain and suffering, the non-economic damages? You know, so, and, and the reason I think, the reason I'm asking that is, you know, some people have a higher pain tolerance. So, you know, what, what, what might, what might devastate one person might be something another person just says, ah, you know, tis but a flesh wound. And so how do you, how do you measure that as, as a trial lawyer? Well, you start with yourself. You, you look at the injuries suffered by your client and you put yourself in their shoes and you say, how much would I take to have this inflicted upon me? And if it's not enough, then you're probably too low. And that's what we've done in, in cases. The, the large verdict, the $352 million verdict, unfortunately, we have a family member who has very similar injuries. It's the worst injured person I've ever seen in my life. Mm. We have a family member who has very similar injuries that we personally observe on a regular basis. So we knew what the right ask number would be because we personally have gone through it. And the jury agreed mm. with us, uh, certainly on that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry for your family member, of course, and and wish them well. And ho hopefully they... Hopefully their pain is minimized. I don't know if that's even possible, but I wish them well and you know moving forward. You make an interesting point about about damages witnesses in the article, right? And so for, for those who haven't read the article or are about to read the article, effectively you're saying don't just focus on the doctors. There are other professionals and other people that need to come into the picture to really help help paint a, a fuller image for the jury. And you're talking about therapists, you're talking about family members. I was surprised to read that because, you know, is that not already being done by trial lawyers? Is that something that traditionally trial lawyers hadn't done in the past? I don't think they that they, meaning we, have done it enough. Sure. You know, we have clients that we grow to like or love and we put them on the stand and we think the juries will uh, like and love them like we do. But, you know, right. the jurors have suspicions too, as they should. And if for a plaintiff to say, I hurt uh, this much per day or per week is one thing, but for a, another person, uh, whether it's a coworker or a therapist, they're able to maybe better articulate what it is that the plaintiff is experiencing on a regular basis. And they are often more powerful witnesses than the plaintiff themselves, or maybe even a close family member who the jury may think has a financial interest and in uh, exaggerating their symptoms. Interestingly, you know, I was, I, I was thinking through that, you know, and because the first thing when I read about, about family members or even the plaintiffs themselves is, you know, over time, if everybody understands, if plaintiffs start to understand that there is more of an emphasis on non-economic damages and, you know, maybe, it, it, maybe this is the wrong term, but the softer, the softer numbers of damages, that they might start coming in and and when they meet with their lawyers, kind of exaggerating their, their pain and suffering symptoms. It sounds like what you're saying is that by putting in maybe not close family, but maybe acquaintances or people that are friends of friends who've watched this, you kind of help to bolster the credibility of those claims. Is that is is, is that effectively what you're what you're saying from a persuasive standpoint? to not put up the people directly affected by it, but maybe those that are more in the orbit of those people. Yeah, I think for people to describe from a different angle, from a different viewpoint, what they see the injured plaintiff going through, you can use videos and you can use pictures as well to supplement that. And, and we've done that in cases, but it's been outside witnesses that are able to describe in their own words what they've observed. 
and and it lessens the conspiracy theories that some defense lawyers want to piece together that everybody's just you know telling one big lie and um you know it 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 takes that argument away it's unlikely that these people from outside the close family circle are going to come in and lie on behalf of this plaintiff you talk about starting with the client and i found that to be very i found that to be a fascinating portion of the article kind of walk us through if you would when you're sitting down with your clients how do you how do you start with them and how do you walk through the whole the whole pain and suffering and non-economic damages side of their case i mean can, can you walk us through a day in the life of quote starting with the client yeah so if you have let's say a wrongful death case and and a father dies um in a terrible tragedy and the daughter is thinking about well he won't be able to walk me down the aisle and and he won't be able to give me advice. That's something that's expected, and it's major. It's significant. Those are significant uh, events that occur in our lives. But there's other times when that father may have been important, including teaching her how to drive when she gets older, or giving advice on, you know, boys or how to save money. Maybe he was a the father was a particularly good um, money saver. How to invest in stocks. And so we tried to give the plaintiff more than just the highlights of uh, our life events and go to the more minute details. And, and those can be very effective, including, you know, for an injured person, just turning over in bed every night is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, wakes me up and it keeps me up an extra five minutes or an extra 10 minutes. It affects my sleep. You know, affecting your sleep can also affect your longevity. It can affect your other organs. And so we tried to to, to drill down as far as we can as to how these injuries affect a, a person on an every day and then every decade uh, time period. Walking them through this framework for non-economic damages, do you have do you have questions you ask them or do you sit down and actually have them describe what the pain and suffering is? In injury cases, what we try to do is give them uh, a notebook, address it to us, and keep mm -hmm. it for a month or two and write down uh, each of the ways that the injury affects them from the most minute detail possible. And we can use that to prepare them for their deposition and for their trial testimony. And it helps us pick out things that we think will resonate best with the jury. Let's talk, for example, about the the other side of the aisle. You know, so you've you've talked a bit about defense lawyers and 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 how that how that comes into play. When it comes when it comes to addressing addressing this issue of non-economic damages, you know what role do defense lawyers play? I mean, and, and this is assuming that everybody's trying to do best by their client, but still get a justiciable result, and that nobody's trying to hide facts or do anything like that. Assuming that you've got both parties, both sets of lawyers acting in good faith, what role do you see for defense lawyers in in appropriately addressing the issue of non-economic damages? You know, I think in in this new paradigm, the defense lawyers are in in a tighter box on what they can do. They almost have always, and they still will say, you know, folks, this is about um, a reasonable compensation system, and what the plaintiff is asking for is not reasonable. They have a difficult choice of then throwing out a number on what they think is reasonable, which could be unreasonable in and of itself, mm -hmm. or not throwing out a number for which the only number in front of the jury is the number the plaintiff has suggested. So the defense lawyers are in a more difficult situation today because jurors are listening to you know real 
analysis done by the plaintiffs, the the other witnesses who can testify about what the plaintiffs have gone through, and the plaintiffs' lawyers suggesting these uh, numbers, and they've got to come up with a better argument than it's been they've been coming up with in you know the last few decades. This question might be this might be one you don't want to answer, and if you don't, I completely understand. But so, if you were on the defense side, you know, let's assume you switch roles for a second. How would you respond to this this sort of, I guess. I guess it's a fledgling but growing movement towards presenting non-economic damages. You know, so, so you just laid out this this dichotomy. You know, you've got this dilemma. Do you throw out a number or do you let the plaintiff's number stick and you just say it's unfair? If you were a defense lawyer, how would you react to this? What would be your strategy? Well, that's a case-by-case basis. And, you know, you have to talk about overreaching and you have to find a villain, whether it's the plaintiff's lawyer or the plaintiff themselves. In the case we tried last October, the defense lawyer, a very, very good defense lawyer, Rusty Hardin, had come up with, a, I think, a practice number because we did ask for over $350 million. And he suggested a number of about $24 million uh, in his argument. And addressing our number, he said, you know, uh, this system is not about creating generational wealth because the, there were, we had the injured uh, mm-hmm. victim, his wife and his children. And that probably played well. My guess is they had focus group that that phrase generational wealth, but you can never tell, you know, what's what the other side knows. And I mentioned earlier my family member. It happens to be my father in law, and I watched as my mother in law takes amazing care of him on an everyday basis. My wife and her sister go over every week and take care of him, and we have a young son, and he goes over with his grandfather and helps take care of him. And so in rebuttal. Uh, in response to the generational wealth comment, uh, I pointed out that the defendants did not create generational wealth in this. What they created was a generational burden because it was the wife who was taking care of Mr. Cruz, our client. It was his kids who were at that point in time, 21 and 17, taking care of their father. And Mr. Cruz was going to live another 22 years. So it was likely going to be his grandkids also taking care of that. So our generational burden argument, we think, carried the day over their generational wealth argument. I'm sure they thought it was a great phrase at the time, but they didn't know that, you know, we had personal experience going through this. What I witnessed with my own eyes, I was able to translate and and supply to the jury in, in rebuttal. What would you think of putting an hourly rate figure to something like this? You know, so if you're talking about family members having to care for the injured plaintiff, would it make sense to turn that into almost a semi-economic damages argument claim and say, you know, look, this isn't a medical bill, but all of these family members are going to be impacted and the man hours it's going to take to care for this plaintiff amounts to this. And if you put the hourly rate of Y to that number, here's, here's a number you get to, and it's a fair number. Whether you're plaintiff for defense, do you think that would be a sensible argument to make? Yeah, well, in fact, that is often made. We call it a per diem argument in the most common okay. form. You know, how much per day, per hour, if it was, if it was uh, the jury should evaluate. And you can do that and the numbers can add up. You can also do it on a job application. You know, you're applying for a job. Mm-hmm. Here is what the requirements of the job are. You're going to suffer through pain, anguish, and you go through the, the specifics. Sure. And is that worth $10 an hour to do that? That's effective both ways. We've seen defense lawyers use it effectively saying, you know, this number amounts to X number of dollars per hour. That's outrageous. And they try, the defense lawyers will try to 
put it in the frame of this is how much a person earns per year. It's up to us as the plaintiff's lawyers to, to put that in perspective because this isn't a job. No one's going to take a job that would mm-hmm. pay you $50,000 a year to suffer through pain. But mm-hmm. it's a metric that you can use. And if we're going to use that metric, let's look at it over the long term. So keeping things in context, using the right metrics is the best way for each side to put forth their best argument. Before we close out, I wanted to address another piece of advice that you give in your article, which is, and if I read this, correct me if I'm misinterpreting or if I'm misstating, but effectively, most of the time plaintiff's lawyers will spend a lot of time talking about liability in their in their opening statements and their closing arguments. But really they need to spend more time talking about these non-economic damages. I guess moving forward, the question becomes, you know, how much, what's the right split on that? Because, you know, of course, without the liability, you could be dead in the water. But if you don't focus on non-economic damages, it may all be for naught. So I know it's case by case, but how do you kind of analyze how much time to spend on liability, how much time to spend on damages? In a contested liability case, you may spend 60% on liability and 40% on damages. If you think you have liability more uh, on your in your favor as a plaintiff, then I prefer a 50-50 model of calling 50% of the witnesses on liability and 50% on damages. And those damages witnesses may be more, but they may only be on the stand for, for five or 10 minutes. And those can be very pow- a powerful five or 10 minute witness. Um, they, they can do a great job for you. And you if you can have several of those looking at different angles, so it's not just a big uh, duplicative series of witnesses, they can be effective. But I do believe because some plaintiff's lawyers, including me, have been bitten by a case they assume that liability will be one on and you you get poured out for no liability. I do believe we all default to spending a little more time on liability than than we may have to. With your witnesses, do you like to take your non-economic damages witnesses and kind of intersperse them throughout the litigation? Or do you try to do you try to clump them all together to just kind of unload you know, all, all this information to the jury at one time, which do, do you have a preferred method or an, or an advisable method on how to do that? Yeah. If it's a multi-day trial, I do agree that you need to keep the, the some focus each day on liability and some focus each day on damages. And that 50, 50 balance is where I think is uh, where I like to be in most cases. Well, Randy, this is, this has turned out to be a very fascinating topic and I'm sure we could talk about this all day, but Unfortunately, we are at the end of our time together, and I want to I want to thank you again for for taking the time to join us and for for giving us this very fascinating overview on on tort damages and that too non economic damages. So thank you again for being with us. Uh, thank you, Rocky. Really appreciate it. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in, and I want to encourage you to stay safe and be well. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, 
representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.